growing up, I always wanted to see more people who look like me that were successful. Can I afford to take a risk to follow my dreams? We are excited to bring you the Make Your Mark podcast, hosted by philanthropist Kim Niles. The Make Your Mark podcast allows you to hear personal stories of resilience by professionals and public figures of color. Our guests unapologetically share their triumphs, lessons learned, and how they found balance in their experiences. Tune in to equip yourself with strategies and coping mechanisms on how to boldly make your mark. Subscribe and listen now. Elizabeth Dory Tunstall is a design anthropologist, researcher, academic leader, writer, and educator. She is the Dean Faculty of Design at OCAD University in Toronto, Canada, and the first Black Dean of Faculty of Design anywhere. Listen as Dr. Tunstall unpacks her journey to authentic leadership. I always say my job is to create the conditions of possibility for our students to flourish, my faculty to flourish, and do so in a way that they feel like they have the resources they need, which is always a struggle, to have um, support where they need it. And I think for the students to really understand how the system works so that they can navigate the system with ease. As the first Black Dean, I have a special commitment, I think, to uh, the Black students and Black faculty at OCAD University. And so a lot of the work that I've been doing in the last year is really deepening the relationship between OCAD University and the Black communities, in plural, (laughs) Uh, so that our students have that direct engagement so that after they leave OCAD University, They have a network that they can move into. We've established, for example, a partnership with the Black Business Professional Association where we've bought memberships uh, for our students for two reasons. One, the BBPA has lots of bursaries, so they're very important. That's how we provide resources. Um, It's connecting through that. But also so that they can begin to engage with professional network when they graduate or even before they graduate as we sort of develop with that. So in that sense, providing the resources is really about how do we connect with the resources outside of OCAD University that are part of the community. But because in many ways, and I say particularly with the Black community, OCAD hasn't had a really deep relationship institutionally. Like we've had amazing faculty like Lillian Allen and Andrea Patono, who has really deep relationships, but institutionally, we haven't had that relationship. A lot of my work is building those connections so that I can develop the resources. I represent BIPOC people, Black, Indigenous, and POC people. And so I go to the wide variety of events across those communities, but to the same extent to where there's a lot of people who have focus on Indigenous community. My focus, again, as the most senior Black person at OCAD University, I know I have a special commitment to that community. And the issues of underrepresentation are incredibly important. Uh, The issues of 
like I said, engagement and finding in some ways their identity as black designers or artists is really important. So all the things that I go to, the events that I go to are things that I would want to go to anyway, if I wasn't the dean of the faculty of design is just now I have, let's say, I'm actually quite shy and introverted. <laughs> Um, but because I'm the Dean of Design and I have to represent, I kind of force myself to be more uh, extroverted in presentation because I know it's important for me to be out there to make those connections, right? And so in that sense, so it's a lot of work, but there, I have a lot of community support both inside OCAD University. The students all, the best way to say, lift me up in the sense of um, showing their appreciation and the sense of actively engaging in the, in the relationships that I'm trying to support for them. And so in that sense, it's, it's an easy job in the sense that I'm not doing it alone. I know how meaningful it is um, and I know how other people will take on the kind of things that I initiate and move them even further than I can imagine. The tragedy of design is that for many of our Black, Indigenous, and POC students is that they actually have to choose between their diverse identities and being a, a professional designer. And so for me, decolonizing design is to erase that sense of I have to be one or another. And um, so partly about engaging with community is introducing them to designers and artists who is like, you know, I'm Black as possible. <laughs> I'm deeply engaged in the right. community and I'm able to make a living, not just within the community or outside the community. It's about lifting up in some ways the, the aesthetic traditions that are part of the Black community, the Black diaspora from Africa, and do so in such a way that it is seen as on par with the aesthetic traditions of Europe, which is where a lot of design comes from. So for us, decolonizing is about creating that space where our students can feel they can authentically be themselves and belong in a design program, belong in an art program, and have faculty to help model the way and have mentors inside and outside the institution to help model the way but also an industry. So like this January, I gave a talk at the MoMA and it was basically about how, you know, we need to decolonize design. And um, afterwards, again, very prominent black designers came up to me and said, you know what? I actually haven't really thought about the fact that I don't bring myself into my client work. And now I'm really thinking about how do I do that, but also be able to retain my clients, right? And so I've been causing a lot of existential crisis <laughs> as I travel around the world, really, um, giving presentations about what it means to decolonize design and what does it mean to be a, a designer who can authentically be themselves in all of their, you know, complexity. I'm in a position of enough authority and enough safety in the sense of like, even if I'm not the dean, technically speaking, I'm tenured faculty at Okada University. So there's a way in which I'm realizing that I'm in a position to be more fearless 
about how I present things, how I represent things, because the repercussions for me are relatively minor in terms of affecting, you know, like my ability to pay my rent or all these other things that then some people feel like they have to be more cautious and they do have to be um, more cautious, but I can be a truth teller in a way because my position as dean and particularly my position as first black dean means that I have to, again, create the conditions for those truths to be told. And I have to be fearless in my way of doing so, so that the next person who comes after me (laughs) can be as fearless. Well, right now, I mean, our main value is decolonization. But I think within that is actually just the notion of respect, because so much of, let's say, the sense of distance that, let's say, our students might feel from design. In the Toronto context, what they're experiencing is is actually a lot of distance from their sense of uh, belonging and identity culturally, that it is the perception of the lack of respect that my ways of being in the world, my ways of seeing the world, engaging in the world would not be accepted, would not be valued. That I think drives a lot of the anxiety and frustration that I would say students as well as faculty and administrators um, might feel at a place like Okai University. So for me, the main value is respect. If you have respect, then everything else in terms of, let's say, compassion, everything else in terms of understanding, everything else in terms of, of how you like love, <laughs> all those things come um, when there's a sense of respect. When you say that your existence, regardless of how useful it might be to me, is beautiful in and of itself, just for the fact that you exist in all of your diversities and beauties. And that's not just in terms of human relationships, but the relationships we have to nature, the relationships we have to, let's say, the supernatural world, the relationships that we have to everything. And so um, part of that is that the embodiment of that notion, I, is, as I really appreciate in India, the Jain sort of philosophy, they have this notion of ahimsa. And that's the, it's really this notion to do no harm. But in that system, it's not just like we normally say do no harm and we normally mean to other people, but it's like do no harm to microbes. (laughs) Do no, you know, like do not eat our garlic and onions because there's microbes on there that you might kill by eating, you know, those foods. Uh, When you uh, make something out of silk, Use a process that means you don't kill the silkworm because they have their existence is beautiful in and of itself beyond its utility to us. And so when I think of respect, I also think of that notion of ahimsa. So if you respect something, then you won't do it any harm, mm-hmm. right? And if if we could just not do harm, <laughs> I think we would have um the solution to, you know, the behavioral and attitudinal solution to all of the things that we do that are deeply, deeply harmful. Looking to consolidate your debt? In the market to purchase your first home? Interested in acquiring an investment property? Look no further. 
More Freedom is here to serve you. We aim to furnish our clients with the power and the confidence over their finances and a sense of accomplishment of taking the first step to get there. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at I Want More Freedom. And you can always connect with us via our website at morefreedom.ca. A lot of the conversations we've been having around Indigenous philosophies um, and Indigenous principles is, is a lot of those what's called relational, right? So it's, um, you know, it's this notion of all my kin that you hear. It's that notion that we have a relationship, not of obligation to all the other things that exist in the universe. So in that sense, it's that you let it be, <laughs> let it exist, but you also maintain connection to it, right? That you also um, seek to nurture it when you can so that it's because it's in that act of connection and in that act of nurturing that everything's allowed to flourish. And that's, you know, sun nourishes, water nourishes, the host system nourishes, which is allows us to grow and develop. But so it's letting it be, but it's also maintaining that connection and making sure that a connection is a nourishing connection um, that you're establishing with all things. And, and what's great about like again design, the work that we do in design is that we are connected to everything. Everything that is human made is touched in some ways by a designer, which means that that connection is already there, but sometimes that connection is not nourishing it uh, diminishes things instead of allowing it to grow and flourish. And so part of it is changing that mindset around what are you doing with that connection that you've established? What is it that you're doing with what you're making? Mm -hmm. So that it's everything can flourish by your creation and, and making of that. And it's a hard thing to teach. I think we have to rethink our notion of what is a good life. And I say this, like in design, we talk about how we need to separate design from the modernist project, which basically is this notion that through technology, we can all progress. But that progress was, is based on the notion of everyone living like a king, right? So it's like the whole thing about the king and their lifestyle was that it wasn't sustainable. That's why they were always having to like conquer someone or whatever. It was a non-sustainable lifestyle that was highly exploitative. So if everyone is trying to live like a king, which means making things cheaper, making things faster, making things easier, accessible to everyone, then that's why we have all of the issues with the environment because that ideal of what's a good life, that ideal we're seeking to as progress is based on an uh, aristocratic notion, which in and of itself was unsustainable. So changing our notion of what a good life is, a good life is about the relationships that you have that are nurturing. A good life is having enough, not more, <laughs> but having enough that you need to be fed and clothed and all those things we need to survive in our environment. If we can just scale down our sense of what is enough for us to feel full, both internally as well as sort of physically, then I think we have the basis to change our society and 
again, engage more respectful because I don't have to take more. I can actually share with you because I actually have enough. And actually, if I have a little bit more, I may even give you a little bit of extra because I notice you may not have enough, right? But right now we're all like, I want to live like the king. <laughs> and, uh, and that's not possible um, in a way that allows everything else to, to survive, to flourish. So the thing to, to understand is even my PhD is in anthropology, which if you don't understand what anthropology is, is that you go generally to other places and you talk to people who are living their everyday lives and they are the experts. So whether you're talking to a five-year-old or a 95-year-old, everyone that you are encountering is an expert, more of an expert than you are in what it is that you're trying to understand. I think I went into anthropology because there's a way in which if you are really successful in the formal education system, that you can get a little arrogant <laughs> and think you know more than anyone else. And so an anthropology is a great test of humility because, like I said, this five-year-old that will know more about something that you're trying to understand than you would without, you know, your PhD in that. So for me, generally, I think of like the academic system is really someone has taken street knowledge and written a book about it. And then you're reading secondhand that book. There's many situations where I could be like standing on the side or walking into a space and I will be completely invisible. And then normally I will... Or it's actually even better if someone else introduces me. <laughs> so like, here, um, here's Dr. Dory Tunstall. She's an anthropologist. She has her PhD from Stanford. And all of a sudden, I can see how I'm now a human being in that person's eye, where I was completely invisible before. All of a sudden, I'm real. And then I have about 10 seconds to see me as fully human. <laughs> So it's a thing where um, the value of formal education, and again, I say particularly if you're a Black, Indigenous, POC person, is that it creates space for people to hear you. And I say specific people to hear you in the sense that, you know, our social structures are such that if you're not white, if you're not male, if you're not cisgendered male or all these sort of things that you can be, you can be rendered invisible or hyper visible, <laughs> uh, which is the other, you know, issues. Cause I've also had situations where I've come into a room and everyone's like, how can we help you? Do you belong here? Basically in the subtext and someone then say, oh yes, she's our keynote for the, uh, for the morning. And then again, that transformation where all of a sudden I become a human being, not just this entity that's disrupted their space. So the, the PhD, I say higher education is useful, <laughs> not so much for the learning. Uh, and I'll, context, I'll contextualize that because that'll get me in trouble. It's mostly for the social relationships and the social network that you bring. Many things that you learn in formal education is just, I mean, you can get the books yourselves. <laughs> you can, you know, it's like, and there's exercises in them. And normally what you're being assigned is something to do or something to read, which you can do that yourself. 
But what you, the advantage you have in being formal education is you have a community in which you can do that in. And that's why I always emphasize you'll learn more from your classmates than you ever you will from your professors. And also, again, a network. So particularly in fields like design and art, where in the city of Toronto, OCAD University is zero degree of separation <laughs> from any major art and design institution. So automatically you become part of that community and part of that network that if you know how to work it, you have access to. But in the learning itself, you're just getting more practice for learning, but you can do that outside of formal education. Like I said, as an anthropologist, there's a built-in humility to what you do because you realize that everyone else is experts on their lives. And that means you are always the dumbest person in the room, right? And I carry that with me in the sense that I'm trying to understand people, processes, how to make things work, which means I'm always the dumbest person in the room because everyone else is their expert on their experience. Right. For example, that we're doing trying to decolonize design at OCAD mm -hmm. University is a process of our learning because yeah. we've learned uh, the Bauhaus is great. We've learned uh, these like white space. It has to be all about the white space. And so part of decolonization is really that unlearning of this is the way in which we've been told to do things. Is that relevant for the context we're in now? And it's like the, the reason why these kind of changes are so difficult for individuals and institutions is that that unlearning is painful because you may have built some expertise and ego <laughs> in knowing those things. And so to have your whole world shift mm -hmm. and to sort of say, well, there's this other thing here or to be told in some ways, because that's how it's heard. It's like, oh, the way in which you're doing things is bad because it's harmful to people, right? That unlearning process is so it deeply, deeply affects your sense of self right? because you have to, when you unlearn, you actually have to rebuild yourself from the inside out. And that's a lot of hard work that many times we're not encouraged to do. Um, we're not supported to do, but it's an important, if you're going to keep learning, if you're going to keep growing, um, it's the important work that you have to be to do for yourself, but also for other people. Like the possibilities of change that we have at OCAD is completely related to the fact that our students are so diverse. And let's say my faculty members really care about their students. So when our students say, this hurts me, this way of learning is hurting me, then they'll listen to that and they're willing to unlearn because of the care that they feel for those students. Tired of being tired? Seeking to build your self-confidence? Are you feeling uncomfortable in your skin? It's time to move with Kim. Studies have shown that in this era of exponential growth of the metabolic syndrome and obesity, Lifestyle modifications have been proven to be one of the most effective ways to improve your health and quality of life. Let's chat about your goals and how we will get you there. Send your inquiries to hello at kimniles.com 
and let's start conditioning your mental and physical health today. So a lot of my work, like I would say the the hard work that I do as a dean Mm -hmm. is actually helping the institution to craft the language around that excavation process, Mm -hmm. right? To sort of say, well, first of all, what is it that we're pulling up and why? (laughs) What are the things that, like, we don't want to just pull everything up. What are the things that need to remain there as part of a new infrastructure that's Mm -hmm. being built? How do we want to quote-unquote, catalog and recognize those things? What is it that we need to discard because it's not useful anymore? Um, What is so toxic that we actually have to be very careful about the way in which we discard it? So a lot of of the work that I do and have been doing the last two and a half years is actually helping the institution craft the language to explain what this excavation process is about. And... By doing that, helping to relieve the anxiety around that sense of you're tearing out my soul. <laughs> the first assumption is that there are lots of support systems at home and that, <laughs> not, yeah. that may not be such a true assumption. Mm-hmm. I think I've been very lucky in my choices to find what I call like-hearted people. So in the States, um, So let's say, for example, I I have my PhD from Stanford. And the reason why I ended up going to Stanford was uh, because of two people. Uh, First, one person saying to me, this place is really screwed up, which is why we need you. And that honesty about like, because, you know, most of the time when you go get the tour, everyone's like, this is like, you know, yeah. La, 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 happy land, <laughs> right? <laughs> the Disneyfication of the world. And um, so for someone to be that honest about how difficult it is to be in that space and then the necessity of having you there in order to make it better, like that to me was saying, okay, here's a like-hearted person. Because I think one of the things that I'm quasi-noticing um, about sort of the difference, let's say for me being African-American and then being in Blackness in, let's say, the Toronto context, is that as mother's milk, we are told that we are part of the struggle. Mm. So we are told that you're going to have to work hard. You're going to have to break down these barriers because there's these multiple generations of people who have opened the door for you and your life is easier than your grandmother's and your great grandmother's and you have to make it easier for everyone. So that is like day zero, right? Understanding about your position. And if you have any talent, whether that's like you're really smart or you're really uh, gifted in one way or another, um, that you're, you have an obligation and responsibility to make it better for the next generation. Within that then is that notion of when you come here or when I come here and other places that I find those people who have that same understanding. Right. So, you know, when I was in Australia, I worked really closely with the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, the indigenous communities there, and learn the similarities and differences, <laughs> but surrounded myself 
with people who had that same sense of like, we have to make it better for the next generation. Again, you know, even going backwards, like, again, I went to Stanford because there were people there who saying we have to make it better for the next generation. And coming, the call from OCAD was something for the dean's position was something I've never read. I actually never could imagine that they would call for a dean who helped facilitate the process of decolonization and indigenous vitalization. In Australia, the language around decolonization is very strong. Like I said, I was hanging out with the, you know, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander community. So they're all like black power. And that's actually a direct dialogue between the African-American experiences. And again, the black Australian experience, because their blackness is embedded in their indigeneity. So in that sense, I, the, the six and a half years that I spent in Australia helped prepare me to understand how to find and build that same community here in Toronto. And again, I've had amazing introductions. So Lillian Allen, day one, is like taking me under your wings, right? right? So kind of like Andrew Fotona was in had like dinners like every month to right. invite me to and introduce me to different people in the community. So my entry into the community has been super supportive and um, smooth um, from the very beginning. And well, the thing is, is you find that there's so many, like, again, the last, so it's like two and a half years. So the first year I was really learning about OCAD and who's, who's doing what at OCAD University and how I could support. And then the last year and a half has been me going out all the time to figure out what's going on in the community. And as the more I go out, the more I find Mm -hmm. like this person is doing this amazing initiative that I should connect with. And so So it's partly, I think, like I try to radiate that Mm -hmm. so that people who might be in a room with me can feel that energy and kind of come. So I first joined Instagram because I realized my students are only on social media, meaning I could email them and they would not respond (laughs) at all. But I would DM them. I would like a direct message them on Instagram and they would immediately respond. And so I realized that, oh, if I'm going to communicate to my students and it's, and then mostly my social media platform is really to communicate with my students, um, then I need to do it on the platform that they're on. Again, as the first black and black female dean of a faculty design anywhere, being able to show my students what the day in the life is of a dean is really important for them to be able to imagine the possibilities of them being in that role, right? So again, when I post Dean Drag, hashtag Dean Drag every morning, uh, that it's really about saying, this is how you be a dean in the world. And, and I try to carry that with a sense of authenticity. This is what a dean does. So I normally put a list of like, okay, I'm going to, I have lots of meetings with my faculty. I have, I'm meeting with a VIP today. You know, premiere is coming. So I'm suited up and, you know, whatever. So I try to connect how you appear authentically as a leader with what are the kinds of activities that you have to do with a leader so that every student, and I think particularly like my BIPOC female students or non-binary students, um, can see themselves as a leader. Like, because I dress high and low, so I do have clothes that are made by host couture for important events. 
but I also have like, I wear the gap <laughs> or again, I have the sari summer. So I wear that, or I have a lot of African wax print that I, um, have gotten from like my travels or gifts from people. So I wear that. So, so everything that I wear is about an authentic expression of like, what does it mean to be a leader? And what does it mean to be a black woman as a leader? So that all the young people can see what that looks like. And I think that has to do with, again, like uh, one of the challenges is how do you have authentic leadership? One of the challenges is how do you be something if you can't see it? And a friend of mine actually said that the coolest thing about like my social media presence is that it trains people to think like the woman that you are sitting next to in Starbucks coffee, she could be a dean. And you don't know that because, you know, her hair might be in braids and she might be wearing, you know, a haute couture jacket with gap pants (laughs) and you're not paying that much attention, but you should pay attention because you don't know who could be in positions of leadership and influence. And being a dean at OCAD University, I'm surprised by the cultural and social uh, position that role has, um, especially in the city of Toronto. My career is really quite diverse, like in terms of what I've done. So, you know, I've once I graduated from um, Stanford, I was expected to become a professor. I actually went into industry. So I went into high tech consulting, working at places like Sapient and Arc Worldwide, which did the integrated media for Leo Burnett. And then I went back into academia with a sense of trying to take what I learned in industry and make it accessible to people who didn't have to have a PhD, right? The move to Australia was me um, trying to understand, in some ways, uh, this notion of decolonization. Um, But it was also a career move because I knew I wanted to get more into administration. And I had an opportunity to do so if I moved to Australia more so than if I stayed in the States. So even though I've been studying anthropology for 30 years and it seems like that I've been doing the same thing, like (laughs) the reason why I became an anthropologist is that I was interested in everything. But if you say you're interested in everything, people think you're unfocused. (laughs) So I said, well, I'll study anthropology because I can study anything from like 35,000 before common era to, you know, to tomorrow. And any time and any place in the world, as long as there's human or human-like creatures there, then I can study that and still be under a field, right, to show that I have focus. And that hasn't changed in terms of how I approach things, where I'm interested in almost anything and everything. And I keep moving around to different places and different levels of understanding, let's say, an organization that I never get bored. Again, I've worked in an office for 12 hours a day. (laughs) That's what I did in in high-tech consulting. But what keeps... I'm all about, like, again, connection and human engagement and, you know, plant engagement, whatever it is, but it's all about connection. So even when I was working in an office 12 hours a day, you know, 6,300 hours a week, my work was all about that connection that I had with my colleagues who were some of the brightest people in the world, the connection, because I was meant to talk to people as an anthropologist and figure out like, what is this newfangled thing, the internet going to be like, that's how old it was, right? Like that 
internet thing. What is that going to do to the way in which we work? Because all of my careers have required that I build connections with people, that it's the connections that that make that keep the spark going. And you know, and that again ties into the social media presence as well, is that by having the fact that my students uh, can come up to me and say, I love what you're wearing today, right? Um, the fact that they get over the barrier of me being the dean, right, of the faculty design means that I always have access to that connection. And it is that connection that on the days when I'm in a meeting that is really, really long and really, really painful, that I remember why I'm there and what is important about me being there for to make things better for when I was working in industry, it's how am I making things better for the customer or how am I th- making things better for my colleagues? When it's here, it's now how I'm making things better for my faculty. How am I making things better for my students? How am I making things better for the community? And so the spark for me in my career has always been, I would say my mission or my intentionality in life has always been about how can I use education which is just knowing things and learning about things as a way to build harmonious relationships between people and the things around us. And that hasn't changed. Like my family told me that hasn't changed since the age of six. What has changed is what's the right vehicle or platform to allow me to do that. So in some cases, it's been working in industry because I worked in industry for six, seven seven or eight years. In some cases, it's been being in academia. In some places, it's been traveling all around the world to find what is the best institution or the best situation that I can put myself in so that I can make that intention as real um, and impactful as possible for other people. And so that the spark comes from that same way of wanting to make meaning and have a meaningful presence in the world that I've had since I was six. It's then just finding where's the best place in which I can do that. And again, sometimes the conditions change. That's why I've, I've moved a lot. <laughs> uh, is that conditions change and you realize that this place is actually not the best place for me to do that. And so I, that's a privilege in some ways that I've been able to move and find the, the best place for me to flourish um, and that the work that I do to have greater meaning. You've been listening to the Make Your Mark podcast. You can visit our website and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at makeyourmark.ca. And please subscribe, rate, and review.